This is the Policy Options Podcast. I'm Maddie Haslam. It's a critical time for Kinder Morgan's Trans Mountain Pipeline. Support and resistance to the project have separated people from coast to coast to coast, dividing political parties, provinces, and First Nations. The federal government insists the pipeline will go on as planned. Kinder Morgan, however, has threatened to shelve the project if there's no clear way forward by the end of the month. As protests mount, we can expect the government is keeping a close eye on those getting in the project's way. But the potential extent of the government's monitoring, particularly of Indigenous opposition to this project and others, might come as a surprise. Andrew Crosby and Jeffrey Monaghan joined me to discuss their new book, Policing Indigenous Movements, Dissent in the Security State. The book explores government surveillance of Indigenous movements fighting for social and environmental justice in Canada. Andrew Crosby is a coordinator with Ontario Public Interest Research Group at Carleton University, and Jeffrey Monaghan is an assistant professor at the Institute of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Carleton. Here's our conversation. Jeff and Andy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. So Policing Indigenous Movements came out this month, but you've both been researching this topic for some time. How did each of you come to study this? I work as a, as a prof at Carleton in the criminology department, and, and my research is focused on surveillance. Surveillance of social movements is part of that, but also how national security surveillance impacts um, all kinds of different groups in society and is really expanded in all kinds of different ways. So Andy and I kind of started collaborating specifically on social movement surveillance a couple of years ago. Great. And Andy? Yeah, going back uh, a few years, how I got involved uh, with Jeff was the Algonquins of Barrier Lake. Uh, it was is a community north of Ottawa, and there's a lot of solidarity work going on around their protracted struggle uh, with the provincial and federal governments and logging industries around the time. That was around uh, 2008, 2009. And so we started kind of researching how how this community was being policed and the interf- and government interference from the federal government into their traditional government. And we started looking into how this interference was actually playing out behind the scenes. So we were accessing documents and, you know, kind of discovering the language that was being used and kind of the tactics being used. And that's how it started. We we were researching that and we continued a few years later with Idle No More and we discovered that, you know, a lot of the same language was being used, but and just the the kind of plethora of documents that were being created um, by various different government departments and policing agencies. So yeah, that was kind of the springboard into um, how this book was created. And your book features four case studies of recent Indigenous-led movements uh, that have been closely monitored by the government. You mentioned a couple of them there, but could you tell me a bit more about each one? Sure, I can start with the Algonquin's Barrier Lake, which is the first case study. And that, that is, that's a more localized uh, struggle. As I mentioned, it's a very small community north of Ottawa that's had a decades-long history of struggle with uh, different governments, levels of government, provincial and federal as well as various natural resource in- industries. And around 2009, the, uh, the federal government uh, implemented this, this kind of draconian tool of settler colonialism called Section 74 of, of the Indian Act, and it deposed the traditional chief and council or the traditional governance structure of the Algonquins of Barrier Lake and imposed elections under the Indian Act. And this was seen as this uh, very heavy-handed 
method for dealing with with a community that challenged the Canadian government and the and the Quebec government at various levels. So this case study looks into how the Section 74 uh, was implemented, how it came about, and how it was implemented and enforced um, using police powers. Now we also looked at in that chapter in that case study around the same time, you know, leading up to it around 2006 to 2009, how the federal government and the RCMP implemented, were trying to implement this coordinated approach to policing Aboriginal protests. And we, we accessed lots of different documents that, that showed extensive monitoring of different types of protests, most uh, admittedly from the government's uh, behalf uh, related to land and resources. And so we see how this kind of interest, infrastructure, this fusion of, of resources came together, focusing on uh, Indigenous protest. Jeff, did you want to jump in? Sure. And I think just to add to Andy, I guess, uh, the theme that we've really kind of tried to weave through the case studies is, is one kind of chronological. So we start with the Algonquin of Barrier Lake, you know, which, as Andy noted, is, you know, the late 2000s, uh, well, mid to late 2000s. And it kind of overlaps with some of the, we then kind of transitioned to the, the movements against the Northern Gateway Pipeline, which then kind of transitions into Idle No More which then kind of transitions and overlaps a bit with, with the, the land conflict in Elsie Pogtog, New Brunswick. So we've tried to frame the, the narrative of the book in a, a little bit of a chronological order. And along with that chronology, it's about a 10-year period that we're looking at, maybe a little bit more. We're kind of charting how there's these different processes that are happening within the government where, one, there's this very extensive effort to integrate agencies. Okay, we refer to this as kind of a fusion center style approach, which is very much a product. It's a kind of bureaucratic trend that's produced in the context of the war on terror to share information. So it's, it's basically building in different forms of information sharing and surveillance powers into a whole bunch of different departments. And this is we're kind of, we're noticing that this is really taking shape around Barrier Lake. Uh, but that's a very kind of early stage, but it, it is translating the locale the kind of localness of the conflict in Barrier Lake into these kind of national security languages and national security threats and tying in all these different departments from Indian Affairs to provincial policing departments to Transport Canada to the RCMP. And it's kind of plugging them all in uh, in an integrated fashion. So we're over the course of the book, we're really tracing the development of these integrated information sharing forms of practices, which really culminates in Bill C-51, which was kind of officializing these different forms of information sharing around security in general as the access. Um, so that's one thing that we've kind of framed around. And the other thing we've really kind of framed around is the growth of critical infrastructure, okay, as a kind of organizing umbrella within, within the government. And so we start seeing critical infrastructure and critical infrastructure protection as these kind of organizing principles with Barrier Lake, but they really take off with Gateway and the protests around Gateway, which of course was a pipeline, uh, and especially a lot of the, the direct action and barricades that were associated with I don't know more and railways and major road, major roadways. So all of a sudden, critical infrastructure becomes this major organizing rubric within the national security bureaucracy that's translating all of these different protests and land struggles as national security issues. So we kind of trace this 10-year period through these 
four case studies where it, you know the the language kind of gets applied onto Barrier Lake, but then really starts taking shape and becoming a major organizational rubric uh, by the time we get to LC Pogtop. Can you give me a concrete example of how this monitoring is carried out? Well, I spoke a little bit about the Algonquins of Barrier Lake. Um, and as Jeff was saying, that kind of leads into protests, uh, the resistance against the Northern Gateway pipelines. It's a pipeline, a planned pipeline, proposed pipeline to bring uh, tar sands bitumen west to the to the Pacific for for export. That met a lot of resistance. Um, similar resistance we can see today with Kinder Morgan. You know, a lot of a resistance across British Columbia, especially with uh, Indigenous communities on uh, along the pipeline route. And we see we see that the policing agencies and government departments really fixated on uh, the Unistoten camp, which was a camp, which was a permanent encamp that was on the encampment on the at the crux of various proposed pipelines. And the Unistoten clan of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation straight up said, you know, no pipelines are going to be built and through our territory without our consent. And when various pipeline surveyor crews and the RCMP tried to access the territory, they were repeatedly and, con- and continuously denied access to the, to the territory. And that was viewed as, as a threat from the RCMP and a threat to, uh, to Canada's energy ambitions at the time. So we see that as kind of a major focal point of the monitoring. I mean, we see every other as we as with all the other case studies like Idle and More, we see that every kind of incident associated with Northern Gateway resistance is is monitored uh, by the RCMP. Uh, but we see that there's a special attention paid to the Unisoten camp, which is you know a physical impediment to to the the pipeline being built. And ultimately, we see that pipeline being scrapped. And the, and as Jeff was saying, also overlapping with Idle No More. We see that the the government at the time brought in this series of legislative measures to facilitate uh, resource development and building pipelines and you know cutting back on environmental protections. And we see this as a result of resistance to to energy projects coming out of Alberta and and the pipelines specifically. And this uh, these legislative changes, which were advocated by industry, kind of sparked the Idle No More movement in 2012, in late 2012, where we see hundreds and hundreds of different events and protests being organized around Idle No More. And from the documents that we access, we see that they are monitored extensively. And the RCMP produced thousands and thousands of pages of, along with, you know, various other departments on monitoring anything related to Idle No More. So could be teach-ins or round dances up to like railway blockades and highway blockades and border crossings and stuff like that. And we see that in January of 2013 and kind of the height of this, when there's various national days of action being organized, um, targeting critical infrastructure that um, the Canadian government and security agencies really uh, start to pay attention. They really, they really organize they form all these meetings and in these groups and communication tools, and we see that we see how they respond to to what they see as as a kind of two pronged threat. It's a it's a, it's an it's a peaceful national mobilization of indigenous communities, but it's interpreted it's interpreted as we see it 
from the Canadian government as a threat and that it challenges Canadian sovereignty, this movement. It's challenging the idea of Canadian supremacy and asking for a nation-to-nation relationship or reconfiguring of, of the treaty relationship. And it's also challenging Canada's uh, economy. So it's challenging. It's, it's, it, the movement shows that it can slow down or impede the flow of, of flows of capital out of the country and within the country. So this is this is seen as a as as a as a major threat to Canadian interests. And then after I don't know more, we see this kind of this real infrastructure building of how do we get out ahead of these protests? How do we respond? How can we proactively respond to any potential uh, uprisings such as this? And the Northern Gateway decision was coming up shortly after that. So that was a real concern. And of course, the the final case study around Asli Bakhtag, which was really started in early 2013, but we we know that um, you know what made major news coverage was in October of 2013 around the the dramatic RCMP raid against the uh, uh, anti shale gas encampment near Asli Bakhtag, where there was a camp that was blocking the equipment of SWN resources. Um, so that's that's kind of that's what uh, I think most remember about that particular conflict was this dramatic, violent raid carried out by the RCMP with over 200 officers involved. Um, and from our reading of the documents, over 400 RCMP uh, personnel involved in the entire policing of the protest, which really started in January 2013 and didn't end until December 2013 when the company eventually packed up and left the province. Could you expand a little bit more on what exactly the surveillance systems that were established look like? Sure. So, you know, especially as Andy was saying, you know, during I Don't Know More, I think what's important to contextualize is all of a sudden I Don't Know More was really sparked uh, and organized in a lot of ways through Twitter, right? It was a, it was kind of took this kind of Occupy Arab Spring style form of very kind of rapid mobilization, uh, and it was very decentered, and it was and it was and it was really spontaneous, and it, and a lot of people were drawn out onto the streets and out into all kinds of different cities and areas uh, under this kind of general call, and you know Canadian security agencies were just kind of fixated on on the successfulness of this movement, right? They really saw this in in ways that Andy was saying is kind of threatening some some very kind of entrenched interest and they were really seeing how and it had of course nothing to do with crime per se or anything like that but really uh having to control and needing to control uh the movement and so what ends up happening around then and certainly for i don't know more is we we can see there's um you know a, a mass data banking of information so one of the 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 initial forms of monitoring was of course monitoring open source, what they call open source source material, which is everything from Facebook to Twitter to anything else they can find on the, the internet and starting to data bank all of this information. So they're gridding and they're making matrices of all of the different protests and they're writing reports. So they're saying, okay, there's a, a protest in Prince George. Someone, when they send a cop out to protest in Prince George and they have their notes, they put it in the, the kind of matrix and they're monitoring every single event. So one of the things that you know we document is that there's you know, over a thousand events that happen in this very short, bit over a month period at the end of 2012 to kind of the end of January, maybe even into February of 2013. 
uh, and they're all being mapped. They're all being mapped and gridded, uh, both digitally, but also on the ground. Okay, so it's kind of uh, merging kind of digital surveillance with a very kind of normal, regular on the ground surveillance, and they're data banking. So in addition to the data banking information led by national security organizations, we're establishing all kinds of different working groups, critical infrastructure working groups, different task force that were specifically organized under the rationale of tying in different agencies and information sharing. So the, the goal here was taking this integrated approach to try and get all kinds of different agencies from the national security agencies at the top to different critical infrastructure teams to the military, Transport Canada, Indian Affairs, all kinds of localized police departments to have a kind of integrated approach uh, to sharing information on prominent Indigenous movements. We know that data wasn't just collected about movements and groups of activists and land and water protectors, but also individuals. Can you tell me a bit more about that personal monitoring? So we do know that all kinds of personal monitoring is happening. We don't know the nuts and bolts of how these mechanisms happen. The, the, the national security agencies, of course, are quite opaque institutions uh, and are not very keen about revealing the nuts and bolts of how these mechanisms happen. One of the key documents that we've found in our research have happened in kind of 2015, 2016, and it was called Project Sitka. So what Project Sitka was and why it's important is that it really gives us a window into the extensive data banking of personal, very direct personal information on all kinds of prominent activists in in, in Canada. And what Project Kitsika was, it was a year-long investigation in which uh, a whole bunch of, you know, this was led by the National Security Bureaucracy in Ottawa, but it tasked all kinds of different departments of the RCMP and other partner agencies, which could, we don't know, include private actors, uh, but it tasked them to produce all kinds of, and send all kinds of data to Ottawa on prominent Indigenous rights activists, as they put it, uh, and to send as much information as they could. So all kinds of information was sent uh, to the team who were running Project Sitka for that year. Uh, and what ended up being produced was a, a list of 313 individuals. Those 313 individuals uh, then had their data run through different risk scores. Okay, So these are actuar actuarial models that kind of predict uh, future riskiness. Uh, and they were judged based on what, what was termed their rhetoric, their motivations, and their beliefs. So there's all kinds of data. According to the report document, the final report, this data went all the way back to 2010. So about a five-year period of all kinds of information, personal information that was stored in police data banks, much of which was not criminal in any way, uh, but was being shared by a whole bunch of agencies and then being evaluated, okay, based on these, these kind of risk models, uh, based uh, with, with, the, with the objective of, of determining whether or not these individuals were potentially risky in the future. And the conclusion of that report was that 89 of the 313 individuals that they had evaluated presented a high risk. Now, it's important to know that no point in this process were any individuals notified that they were under a kind of quasi-investigation or evaluation. They couldn't contest these um, the claims that are being, of course, 
put against them in the data bank. And a lot of this information is really has to do with people's social media activity and other sources, but it's really uh, you know, what we would consider charter protected information. These are people's politics, their expressions, their associations that all of a sudden are being evaluated by policing agencies. And can you give a bit more of an idea of how individuals and groups are characterized in these documents and these databases? What kind of language is being used? Yeah, I think it's interesting to to look at some of the materials that were produced during Idle No More. As we were talking about, you know, these various uh, government and policing actors came together to form these groups and to communicate and to kind of to, to fuse their resources. And, and we see various presentations being um, produced uh, starting in January through to March in 2013. One of the interesting presentations that was produced was um, called First Nations 101. So it was, it was to give, the idea was to give uh, actors, uh, people accessing this and people participating in these discussions, an idea of who, who were the participants surrounding Idle No More. So they create all these kind of classifications or how they understand their you know the one-on-one knowledge of First Nations uh, participants in these in these protests. So you know they have the the Idle No More founders, um, they have the militants, the the neutrals, the traditionalists, the supporters, the the chiefs, the Assembly of First Nations chiefs, and then within that are the dissident chiefs. Um, so I I think it's interesting to to see these types of materials produced that show how government actors are. Are, are trying to make sense of, of different protest movements, in this case, I don't know more. And then going on from that, Jeff was talking about Project Sitka, but Sitka is one of the these these reports that is produced uh, following these the big mobilizations like I don't know more and then Elsie Pogdog later on. So in this report and, and other reports, one was produced in 2014, you know, following these mobilizations in 2013 around um, the anti-petroleum movement. So the RCMP created this report trying to make sense of resistance um, to, to tar sands production and expansion and the various pipelines, ambitions, and coming out of that. And so we see some interesting language coming out of these reports. This is kind of the more the more heavy language surrounding, you know, when they're when they're looking at resistance to Canada's uh, energy ambitions around shale gas in the east and around pipelines in the west. And we see this language coming out of ext- uh, Aboriginal extremism. Now, this language has been used for about ten years, as far as we know, going back to two thousand six, two thousand seven. But we see it we see it really pick up again here in 2014, 2015, where they even add the adjective violence. So we see the, this terminology of violent Aboriginal extremism uh, and environmental criminal extremism. This was really surrounding. Um, the resistance in around Elsie Pugdog and the Mi'kmaq Warrior Society, where we see a lot of these, a lot of the the Mi'kmaq participants there, being swept up in Sitka. I think half of the eighty nine, almost half of the eighty nine, were Mi'kmaq from the East Coast associated with the the shale gas resistance. So, uh, this this kind of this kind of language surrounding extremism and Aboriginal extremism is another way that policing and government actors characterize and categorize. Indigenous resistance. Mm-hmm. Jeff, did you want to add anything there? I'll just emphasize the point that part of the effort in the book is really to underline the growth of this extremism category and how it gets applied to Indigenous movements. Of course, it starts to show up around the conflict of Barrier Lake, but it's very well 
established as a category by the time, like Andy's saying, we get to these reports in 2013, 2014, after Idle No More, it's a, it becomes a label that gets applied uh, onto all kinds of indigenous movements. And it's important to underline that the, that the movements that do get deemed as extremists are movements that are demanding nation-to-nation -nation relations, they're demanding control over their land, and they're contesting resource development. So what qualifies as extremism is indigenous movements that simply are not satisfied uh, with the kind of steamrolling of their rights and they're standing up for their rights. They get branded as extremists by the RCMP and the national security bureaucracy. So there's, you know, there's part of what we really are trying to underline is that, you know, this kind of label of extremism is a byproduct of the war on terror, that national security bureaucracies are really using to justify their own resources and to, to apply to domestic groups in order to kind of rationalize more resources uh, and target domestic groups. But it also has a very kind of material focus in that the groups that do get that applied are groups that are demanding their rights. And one of the things that we really underline is that the police themselves are playing a pretty messy game of politics when they're deciding what is extreme and what is extremism and publicly engaging in a in a, a a form of antagonism that is trying to delegitimize those movements and their claims to their rights. Yeah, would you be able to speak even a little bit more to that idea of delegitimizing those claims? Absolutely, and I, I think it's a long history, right? There's a long history of antagonism between policing agencies in Canada and Indigenous movements, and Indigenous movements have been trying to assert their rights since you know, there have been Canadian policing agencies and policing agencies have been at the forefront of really restricting Indigenous rights from the past system to all kinds of different resource conflicts in the last however many years. It's police that are often on the front line and who are criminalizing Indigenous movements for asserting their rights, which of course, in many cases, courts have later said they're in complete um, kind of good standing and that's even according to Canadian law, not even Indigenous law, that they have legitimate claims that they're trying to defend, and yet they've been criminalized for a long, long time. So I think there's a very long history that this is part of, uh, that police are, are being used to really criminalize Indigenous movements for standing up for their rights and really defending the interests of, of resources extraction companies. And specifically what's happened in terms of Canada and pipelines, what we see with a lot of these documents is that there's a language in these documents. Like when Andy's talking about the documents on the anti-petroleum movement, there is a clear support for pipelines within these, these documents. And part of our work is really collecting all of these internal documents. They're not necessarily public documents, but there's a clear affinity between the national security bureaucracies and the pipeline companies. And part of that affinity has grown out of the, the kind of bureaucratic effort to build critical infrastructure as an organizing rubric. Within this organizing rubric, there's all kinds of private companies that participate in various preparedness initiatives. So we have regular meetings uh, that companies have security clearance. They come and talk about security issues related to critical infrastructure and pipelines. And part of what we document is that there is uh, a larger and larger affinity between the national security apparatus and the companies. And it's reflected in these documents, their language. Okay, And there's language in the documents that talks about the importance of pipelines, the importance of jobs, about how much the companies have done to improve their environmental record, all kinds of stuff that has nothing to do with policing, 
these police departments themselves have no expertise in making these claims, but nonetheless, they kind of show that they have an interest in advancing the interests of their partners, like Enbridge, for example, around Northern Gateway. So there's a very clear kind of support for critical infrastructure development. And at the same time, there's this kind of public face where the RCMP and different security agencies are using this language of extremism in the public and brandishing it onto indigenous movements that, again, are asserting their rights. Uh, and what happens there, of course, is a far more dangerous game in which when we start throwing these labels around in the media, we are really, in a way, delegitimizing the claims that are being made around rights. When you start calling people extremists, when you start inferring that there's some ambit of criminality going on, you're actually detracting from the issues, you're detracting from the claims, you're not having any conversation about the actual claims over rights and treaties and entitlements, questions of consultation, even though we're critical of you know, that entire legal rubric, it is a legal rubric that exists that various Indigenous communities are, are making claims in, and the police are actively delegitimizing their efforts to go through these processes. With all of this in mind, what do we know or what can we expect about the surveillance of those who are mobilizing against Kinder Morgan? Well, with Kinder Morgan, uh, we know with the overlap of uh, the policing of these various movements and the documents that are created that the RCMP, for example, have been following the Kinder Morgan proposal process from the beginning, much as they did with Northern Gateway. In British Columbia, the RCMP there the Aboriginal Policing Services create these monthly uh, Aboriginal issues bulletins or strategic uh, assessments. And and within these monthly reports contains all of the energy-related projects in the province uh, that face Indigenous opposition. So Kinder Morgan, Kinder Morgan's trans, trans Mountain expansion has showed up in, in these reports, for example, from the very, very beginning. And they track them on a monthly basis, uh, add any updates, you know, regarding... Not only protests, but the legal processes and economic issues. You know, if there's being incentives offered by the government for communities to to get on board the the project, or if uh, if a community is putting forth a legal challenge, then they they document all this and they comment on it. And one interesting thing they note um, is that you know around these various tar sands pipelines proposals are these different types of uh, alliances, indigenous alliances, and treaty declarations and treaties being formed around opposition to to the tar sands pipeline. So they make special note of that. You know, there's a treaty a treaty alliance against tar sands expansion, uh, the Save the Fraser Declaration. Instances such as this uh, are noted uh, because there's you know dozens of communities signing on to them, vowing to 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 stop uh, any pipeline that they try to build. So Kinder Morgan is, is, you know, we're now years into into it. Uh, we're, you know, it's in the it's in the media, it's in the public eye, g- getting down to a critical point of uh, whether the company will back out of it or not. So it'll be interesting to 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 see, you know, what is produced surrounding the the numerous ongoing protests. I I, f- I find an interesting link from some documents was how. Canadian government tracked was very very interested in what was happening south of the border around the Standing Rock uh, Sioux Nation, around the the Dakota Access Pipeline, the resistance. So you know, thousands of people, the the government noted, CSIS in particular noted, 
that you know thousands of people were coming to support that camp and that there was direct action there was resistance against um its construction and concern that that that's what kinder morgan could face north of the border this kind of um determined uh, resistance and and yeah and and linking in their assessments of what the kinder morgan pipeline could face is you know in their assessments are summaries of you know what happened in new brunswick in 2013 when the Mi'kmaq successfully stopped uh the provinces and swns that's the fracking company's ambitions to um, extract shale gas from the province well thank you both so much for being here it's been wonderful speaking with you our pleasure thanks for having us thank you very much That was Andrew Crosby and Jeffrey Monahan. Their book is called Policing Indigenous Movements, Dissent and the Security State. That's it for this week's episode of the Policy Options Podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at IRPP or tweet me directly at Maddie Haslam. We're also on Facebook and LinkedIn, or you can send us an email at policyoptions at IRPP.org. I'm Maddie Haslam. Thanks so much for listening.